You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. On a recent episode of The Luxury Item podcast, I was joined by analyst and author Erwan Ramborg to discuss his new book, Future Lux, and the major forces shaping the future of luxury. In one chapter, Ramborg writes about how a combination of economic and social factors will lead to female purchases that will move the needle for many luxury subsectors, and not just in the usual areas like jewelry, handbags, and cosmetics, but also shaking up industries historically dominated by men, like the alcohol business. It's not just female master distillers, blenders, executives, and bartenders who are taking the spirits industries to the next level. There are also a number of brands being founded and led by women. One of these women is my guest on the luxury item. Nicola Nice is founder and owner of craft gin cordial company Pomp and Whimsy. Trained sociologist and brand strategist turned spirits producer, Nicola has made a career advising Fortune 500 companies on international branding and consumer insights. Over the past 15 years, in a career spanning academic research, management consultancy, and global strategy for her New York-based market research firm, Think Conservatory, Nicola watched as major spirits producers systematically ignored or misrepresented their female audiences. With sought-after expertise in the national spirits sector through work with clients including Diageo, Grupo Campari, and Bacardi, and on a mission to bring the female consumer perspective to the forefront, in 2015, Nicola turned insight into action. A two-year journey through extensive home infusions and research with her target audience led Nicola to perfect the formula for a uniquely distinct botanical gin liqueur and the launch of Pomp and Whimsy. Since then, Pomp and Whimsy has racked up numerous gold medals from major international spirits competitions, including the Los Angeles International Spirits Competition, Women's Wine and Spirits Awards, and San Francisco World Spirits Competition, to name a few. Welcome to the luxury item, Nicola. Thank you so much for having me. Ironically, I was looking at Entertainment Weekly the other day, and I saw that Pomp and Whimsy was named one of the brands on their holiday gift list. Yes. Yeah. That's great. I used to work at Time Inc. and Entertainment Weekly was one of my brands and you uh, you being on the show. So it was like a double whammy, if you will. So it was great. There you go. The stars were aligning. <laughs> so I love your story and how the brand story of Pomp and Whimsy is rooted in women's history with distilling. So how did Pomp and Whimsy all come about? Oh, okay. Um, big question. I know it's a big question. <laughs> it's a great story. I love, and I think our listeners would really love it. Yeah. Um, so I'm to understand how Pomp and Whimsy came about, you have to sort of understand a little bit about my journey, I think, and how I came to this. Um, I wasn't born into a distilling family or anything like that. Um, but I, my career has been defined by, by research consumer insights and always putting the, the female consumer first. So I trained as a sociologist. I did a sociology PhD after my first degree. And then I've gone through different, various different roles in different industries where the common theme has always been macro consumer trends and consumer insights. And that ultimately landed me in New York um, in 2007 uh, with my own agency called Think Conservatory. And we specialize in what I would describe as fairly early on in the brand development cycle, uh, consumer insights and, and brand positioning. So helping mostly Fortune 500 companies 
better understand their audience, better position their brands against um, areas of unmet need, and of course, innovate new to world brands. And about 50% of my work over the last 10 years or so has been in the spirit space. So Diageo, Bacardi, Campari uh, uh, been some of my clients. And then when I haven't been doing spirits work, as I said, I've, I've developed somewhat of an expertise in gender dynamics in marketing. And so we're spending a lot of time in the area of fashion and beauty and personal care and clients on that side as well. And one of the things that always struck me, struck me pivoting between these two spaces is the way it felt like the beauty and the personal care industry over the last five to 10 years has been working really hard to bring the male consumer <laughs> into mm -hmm. the industry. Um, encourage men to become more engaged with caring for their skin and it, you know, not just being a purely cosmetic interest. And then, as I said, pivoting over into the spirits industry and not seeing those same efforts um, take place around the female consumer. And this was something that at, at first kind of struck me as odd, right? So academically, I was like, wait, women control 70% of household spending on alcohol. And I know from all of the research that I'm doing because I'm spending my days going around the country and around the world doing consumer interviews and, and hearing very much from women that they right. are interested in spirits. And yet at the same time, I'm hearing all these kind of outdated views from within the industry about who women are as drinkers and what types of brands they will respond to. So arguments, for example, that women will buy brands that are targeted towards men or they'll drink what men buy for them um, or that women don't really enjoy spirits, they just enjoy wine. And like I say, I knew from the data this wasn't true. So uh, there was this sort of academic interest in the beginning of, oh, is there some sort of cultural norm or law that I don't know about that, <laughs> you know, that, right, that is right. preventing this. Um, <laughs> but the more I was talking to women specifically and just asking, I would ask this very simple question, um, which is how many spirit brands can you name that are actively targeted towards women? And I would ask that of everyone I met, whether it was consumers, whether it was people in the industry, whether it was buyers, whether it was bartenders and, and people would be stumped, you know, they would, they'd say, well, maybe skinny girls, <laughs> you know, they could think of like one or two. Um, but when I reframe the question and said, okay, well, how many brands can you name that are actively targeted towards men, or even let's just name brands that are named after men, <laughs> right. the inequity just becomes very apparent very quickly. And what I noticed was that when pointing out this, this insight, this simple insight to women, it was very quickly followed up with the question from them of, well, why aren't there more brands that speak hmm. to me? And then getting visibly annoyed by that. <laughs> and, you know, when you are, when you work in consumer insights, you're looking for, you're always looking for moments of passion, right? Passion points, points that points of, of interest or opportunity that you know could get your consumer motivated. Because if there's one thing that it's hard to do is consumer can say they like something or dislike something, it's hard to get them to do anything about it. So that seemed to me like a big opportunity. And then ultimately the main conclusion that I came to as to why there weren't more brands taking women seriously or why there weren't more successful ones was a very simple observation that there weren't enough women behind the wheel 
um, in the creation, marketing and selling of hard liquor. So eventually I came down to the conclusion that if we're going to do this and we're going to do this well, we need to start with the consumer. But, you know, that insight needs to flow all the way through to the top of the business. So when you when you were doing the research, did you have any headlines in mind going into it or it was just, well, let's see what come, let's see the insights that are surfaced from this research? Yeah. So it, it very, it very much started with this idea of let's give women back their rightful place. Right. So when we think about cocktail the history of the cocktail for example or cocktailing trends and you know you can go and you can you can read books about this and it it very much is driven by a bartending perspective um which is in turn driven by a primarily male perspective because the cocktail was really born in the late 19th century at in the US at a time when women were not allowed in bars. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, so it kind of stands to reason that, you know, it was male bartenders making drinks for male patrons. And you would be forgiven for thinking that women played no role in that. And similarly, that sort of played forward through the last century and a half. And, but as I said, the reality is very different. So we have been going through a cocktail renaissance over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, I mean, think back 15, 20 years ago, can you imagine being able to get a cocktail at the Yankee Stadium? <laughs> <laughs> no. And, you know, can you imagine going to a barbecue or a book club or a baby shower or a wedding where there is not a signature cocktail? And it's very much women as the, the chief entertainers of the home, as I like to call them, that Know, are really driving those menus and driving those trends and you only need to take a quick look at Pinterest or Instagram to see that come to life. So my feeling was that we need to give women the credit that they deserve for all of the influence and impact that they're having on this cocktail movement today. But we also need to tie that back into history um, and retell the story of women and the cocktail from the beginning. So it was really those two things coming together as the headlines. Now, you, I think you had, in the story, you talk about the whole idea of Mother Gin, mm. and you used to have the nickname Mother Gin. How does that fit into it and in the launch of the brand, the history? Yes. Um, so again, you know, everything, everything is a marriage between what we like, who I like to describe as our target audience, which is, I, I call her the modern hostess. That's just a name that sort of emerged organically. Um, but it's, you know, it's women who are making drinks for other people, <laughs> basically, right. mostly in their homes. Um, and and the, the spirit that we've created for her. So we really started, as I said, we started with women today. And the researcher in me, of course, wanted to understand where the white space was and wanted to understand, as I would do for any client, where are the areas of unmet need? So I simply went out to my target audience and asked them, what does your ideal spirit look like? What's missing? You know, where would you drink this? How would you drink this? What would it taste like? Who would you be with? How would you be feeling? And I was primarily focused on an audience that I, I was I, I specifically from the beginning wanted to avoid brown spirits and dark spirits and focus on white spirits. That's the only thing I knew going in um, was that I, it was going to be focused in the white spirits area in the beginning. And I began to 
to, as I said, ask this question of women and listen to their descriptions and very quickly started to hear a lot of consistency in what they were describing. So they were describing this idea to me of a neutral spirit that was very lightly infused with botanicals that was almost not flowery, but sounded almost like a perfume in the way that they were describing it. Mm -hmm. It was something that they could sip straight. One of their big frustrations about uh, most spirits is that there's somewhat of a learning curve to really enjoy and appreciate neat, hard alcohol. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I think women were frustrated that if they didn't enjoy that, that meant that somehow they were not serious drinkers. Um, and why couldn't they have a spirit that was actually enjoyable to drink straight? So they, you know, they wanted something that was lower in proof. Um, they wanted something that was easy to mix with what they had at home. So whether that was sparkling water or club soda or Prosecco, and then of course, something that they could easily entertain with and, and create simple crowd pleasing cocktails with. And at this point in the conversation, I, I would always stop them and say, well, you know what you're describing is basically gin. Uh, gin is a neutral spirit base that's infused with botanicals that is the basis of more cocktails than any other spirit. So that's essentially what gin is. And then I would get this reaction of, well, I don't like gin or gin is my uncle's drink. Gin tastes like Christmas trees. I had a bad experience <laughs> in college. <laughs> I don't like tonic. <laughs> so I realized there was a cognitive dissonance at play here between what gin sounds like as an idea and what we've all come to associate with it as a taste profile. And so what I wanted to do was kind of go back into history because I knew, obviously, I knew quite a bit about gin already being British, being a gin drinker, but obviously, you know, working in the industry. And as I dug back into the history of gin, you know, around the same sort of period, 150 or so years ago, I uncovered that there were lots of different styles of gin around. And some of these we, we knew about. So people knew about Geneva and, you know, we've been seeing old Tom gin and we've seen pink gins coming back and so on. But learning about how people drank gin back then, that people actually never drank it straight. <laughs> they always added some sugar to it. They added some bitters to it. Um, and when they weren't mixing their own old fashions, if you like, mm -hmm. they were buying what we might now call ready prepared or ready to drink gin cordials. And so in digging into this even further, I was intrigued by this style, the style of a sweetened gin that had maybe been infused and flavored and cut to proof and you could sip it straight, but people were also making beverages with it, uh, the basis of cups. So Pim, Pim's cup, for example, is a gin cordial um, that was used as a basis for a specific style of drink and learned that these were really popular with women, especially and that they would create those own recipes. They'd pass those on from mother to daughter. And yes, as you, as you rightly state at one point in time, gin that the, the spirit had the nickname mother gin and that was to do with women being the makers the sellers the drinkers they were very much drinking gin in different places so they were not drinking in the the saloons and the you know the bars right. where men were drinking beer they were drinking it in other places where women gathered in the backs of stores and in markets and in the home and so on and you know there was a lot of as has been the case all through history women's relationship with alcohol <laughs> has been something that 
you know, the patriarchal institutions have used as a way to control them, right? So creating pop propaganda around, you know, women being not in control of themselves, abandoning their babies. And this was all very much as because they were concerned about the way, you know, women were becoming empowered and needed to put an end to it. So Mother Jin eventually morphed into this phrase, you've probably also heard, Mother's Ruin. But in the beginning, it was Mother Jin. And if you look at kind of literature and, and arts and, and, and plays from the time where Mother Jin is, is um, personified, she's always a queen figure. So she's right. a, she has royal status, not this kind of debauched Jin Lane image of the washerwoman dropping her baby. Um, off the side of a bridge. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to bring that back. I wanted to honor it and I wanted to pay tribute to it. And everything just started to fall into place, basically. So, you know, Mother Gin, the style of gin that women drank, and it seemed to fit the idea of what women were describing to me now. Um, so it seemed very fitting that we should pay tribute to that. Um, and in so doing, pay tribute to the role that women have played um, and use that as a way to inspire them today. There was an article in Vogue where you said that women taste differently than men and that they were more sensitive to smells and can better differentiate between them. So how did that play a role in developing uh, your gin cordial? Yeah, it played a big role. Um, so if you've ever been around uh, a woman during her pregnancy, <laughs> I have. <laughs> you will know that that you know this is this is, we don't need a scientist to tell us that women experience very heightened uh, taste and smell during pregnancy as a result of their hormones, and that this actually extends beyond pregnancy. So there is plenty of scientific evidence to suggest that women in general tend to be more sensitive to um, you know olfactory cues. And there is going one step further than this, there's a there's about one in three women are called um, are, are what scientists would describe as super tasters. And what this means is that they have a higher density of taste buds than the average person. And this makes them particularly sensitive to a lot of different tastes, especially bitter tastes and the burn of alcohol. Um, as well as um, sweet taste. So they taste everything more intensely and um, they can also discriminate much more, um, much more distinctly the, the difference between different flavors. And so what we wanted to, to do as we were creating Pomp and Whimsy was, make, was create a multi-sensorial spirit that would trigger the different senses in the female palate but do so more through subtlety and complexity than through hit you over the head with a big flavor. <laughs> right. um, so that would, that very much went into play. Um, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of theories as to why women might be more sensitive to taste and olfactory cues in general. And that there's an evolutionary biological theory that women, of course, as the lead caregiver, um, of babies and young children are the first line of defense against disease and, and, and poison in the environment. And things that are poisonous tend to taste bitter. So um, you have a heightened sensitivity to those things um, as a result. 
that so it's it's an it's an interesting theory um you know i i would say that i i don't spend a lot of time trying to suggest that women are better at tasting than men or that you know this this has been created purely for the way women taste because i don't want to paint us as a homogeneous group in any way but it certainly did come into how we sort of thought about the multi-sensorial profile of pomp and whimsy the uh, the luxury analyst erwan ramborg who i talked about at the at the beginning he just came out with a book future lux and in it it said that in your research you found that there are specific occasions for spirits that are significant to women specifically what are those occasions yeah so um you know, I think it's easy to sort of think about uh, drinking as usually a fairly social activity. So there's people will often make the argument that and we've just talked about, are there differences in the way that men and women experience flavor and taste? And I would argue that biologically, yes, there are. And that socially and emotionally, the way we engage with flavor concepts is also um fairly gender related. Um, but there are also, yes, specific occasions that I think are key consumption occasions for a female consumer. And that's not to say that these are the only occasions that women drink or that men don't also drink in those occasions. But there are occasions that are drinking moments for women that I think are important. And as we develop Pomp and Whimsy, we wanted to ensure Pomp and Whimsy would would fit these moments in these occasions. So yes, yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so I think you had the, the me moment. I think was one, right? Yes, yeah. So the first is what we would sort of describe as this me moment. So this is a transitional moment, um, and as you as you'll know, if you've spent any time um, understanding the the world of anthropology, for example, that wherever we have transitions in our life they tend to be marked by rituals um, mm -hmm. I think yes. it's something that we've all discovered during the pandemic you know we're all at home all of the time and there's no demarcation anymore there's no commute from the office to the home so we need a way to to create that distinction and that moment in the day is is very much a drinking occasion but for women what it is emotionally is a separation and a transition from all the other roles that she plays during the day. So I think that most women would agree that they feel that they wear multiple hats all of the time, right? So I'm, you know, I'm I'm CEO, I'm employer, I'm um, colleague, I am wife, I am friend, I am sister, I am mother, I am daughter, I am chef, I am cook, I am chauffeur, <laughs> I am therapist, right? right? We play all, we, we feel that we play all these roles at all times. And at some point in the day, we need a moment where we can just be ourselves again. And we are not at the mercy and the back and call of all of these roles we play for other people. But we're at a, a time in a, in a day where we can just, just for a fleeting moment, be ourselves. Um, and that that moment tends to happen around early evening. It could be later in the evening after the kids have gone to bed. But we found from talking to a lot of women that this was quite a key moment for them during the day and was a moment where they were looking for something special, a spirit that they could sip straight. Um, women sort of told us about how, you know, when my husband comes home from work and he's had a great day, you know, a successful day or even a bad day, he feels that he can open his, you know, 80 
dollar bottle of single malt scotch and pour himself a dram and and feel successful and feel a right. sense of status and luxury and 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 they would say to us or say to me what do i have um and right now they she was telling me that they she mostly has wine or champagne but if if she's not a, a scotch drinker or a you know an, ex, uh, an expensive tequila drinker or whatever she she felt like she didn't have something and she would she wanted something that could mark that same feeling for her as her husband has that's not so, to say that women don't drink whiskey by the way i'm just saying that, you know, <laughs> right. they do but um you know for those that for every one woman that did there were at least two that that whiskey was not the right thing for them in that moment did those occasions uh, inform your marketing strategy yes absolutely um so i think so yeah the, the second two occasions are i mean again these are kind of loose labels but the girl that there's a moment during the week where women will dial up their energy a little bit so either that is getting together with other women or maybe with their significant other and they they usually have probably either sparkling wine or a cocktail, a sparkling cocktail in that moment. And then the, the last occasion that is important to women, as I've sort of alluded to earlier on, is this sort of hosted occasion. We are the chief entertainers of the home. So creating that simple crowd pleasing signature cocktail. So as we developed the formula for Pomp and Whimsy, it was very clear. We're like, all right, this has got to be delicious straight. <laughs> it's got to be great with Prosecco or you know something sparkling. And then you should be able to make most of your favorite cocktails with this as the base and it should make them infinitely lovelier. So it very much shaped how we went about you know, really developing the flavor profile. And then yes, as we start to think about the the communications for Pomp and Whimsy and how we reflect back these occasions in our marketing, and um, that very much guides how we do that. Let's talk about the development process before you, you know, before you launched Pomp and Whimsy. You know, spent about two years before you launched. So, yeah, can you take us through a little bit about the process of designing and prototyping and the manufacturing that led up to its launch? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, we knew that this was going to be a gin base, um, and we knew that it would it would be lightly sweetened and infused. So in the beginning, I really I started creating these formulas in my kitchen. So my process has got a little more sophisticated since then. <laughs> um, but in the beginning, I was just taking different um, mainstream gin bases. Um, assuming that you know this is the gin profile that as consumers we're most familiar with and infusing them with different fruits and florals. Um, I had a very clear idea in my head of the profile that I wanted to get towards um, and it started with the simple idea of imagine if Hendrix and St. Germain had a baby. Um, so Hendrix has been a really um, groundbreaking innovation in the spirits space over um, I think it's sort of maybe 20 or so years old now, but Hendrix was really the first gin to move away from that traditional juniper forward London dry profile mm -hmm. and offer a softer profile where the juniper was less obvious and um, they instead highlighted other botanicals. So in the case of Hendrix, it's rose and cucumber. Um, and they really have opened the door for 
a lot of other innovation and what we would now describe in the gin world as the contemporary or new American actually style of gin, even though Hendrix is not an American brand. Um, and then St. Germain has really changed the liqueur space as a what's called a modifier in the industry. So the idea is that you use it in cocktails to add a flavor element and to tie other ingredients together. And I myself was at the time when I was developing this, enjoying Hendrix and tonic with a splash of St. Germain as one of my signature drinks. And it seemed to me that it, that those that sort of combination was pretty fitting to what people, the, the women were describing to me in my research. So even though Pomp and Whimsy does not share any really, except maybe cucumber of the same ingredients as either of those two spirits, that was my starting point in terms of a, a broad profile um, and you know I actually came to the formula very quickly and started to test it on my audience um, place the product with them place a prototype with them and tracked them um, over a month or two month period to see when they were drinking how they were drinking you know who they were with how they were mixing it the types of occasions to see if it was sort of fitting with the the insights that I had learned earlier on and then it was a matter of taking it to a commercial distillery and developing a formula that was commercially viable um, and and that that was really what took that took probably another 12 months you know naming is is one of the things that founders struggle with most so how did you arrive at pomp and whimsy Yes, um, it's it's funny because you know we're, when we're working on innovation projects for my clients, I would absolutely agree that that naming is the is the hardest part of any innovation, and you can spend thousands and thousands of dollars and days and weeks and months going through every name in the dictionary, only to come back to the very first one that you thought of. Um, and usually, I would say it the secret is in one of the first things that comes to mind. So Pomp and Whimsy as a name, just to give you the um, what's and all version of this story, in the beginning was an internal project name. So it happened to be a name that we had concepted as we were sort of looking at um, different business ideas around luxury actually, um, and developing a, a product or a service in the luxury space. And, you know, trying to sort of fuse this concept of something that is old and traditional with some and, and masculine with something which is new and fun and modern. And sort of Pomp and Whimsy was just an, a name that, um, that we kind of landed on or, or, or a concept even. And as we were developing the the brand platform, as it were, um, for what was to become Pomp and Whimsy, we got pretty far down through the process of design without having a name. <laughs> um, and, you know, we knew how we wanted, we knew how we wanted people to feel. We knew what the product was doing for them. We knew that, you know, we knew what it was, we knew how it tasted, but we didn't have a name. And so it got finally down to the packaging and as we were developing different packaging iterations, um, you know, we, we obviously needed to put a name in there so that the packaging would 
be complete and make sense to take it into consumer research and testing. And so <laughs> we just decided to put Pomp and Whimsy in as a placeholder. And we had one or two other names that we were playing with as well. And it was really in the research that it emerged as something that we knew had legs. And it wasn't what we, it, we didn't plan it that way. So we realized that it really started to fit this concept that people were looking for of this traditional style of gin that's been updated for a modern palette. And then taking something which is kind of an old world pompous category and injecting modernity and femininity into it. It just seemed to capture that idea. And more importantly, when we put it in front of consumers, we were getting really strong reactions to it. So people, it's always a good sign when you do any kind of naming research, when people either love it or hate it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great name and yeah. it fits exactly what the brand is. Yeah. So, so, so at that point we stopped questioning it and <laughs> we just right. kept it. So what were some of your biggest challenges in getting Pomp and Whimsy up and running? I think that the two um, biggest challenges have been navigating the three tier system. Um, I think that if you come from a consumer background, like, like I do a consumer marketing background, it's easy to assume that all you need is great branding and consumer insights and, you know, and creative and innovative marketing ideas. But in reality, this is an industry where first and foremost, you need distribution. And that's really sales and actually a large part of our industries is, is a B2B industry. We, yes, we're, we are ultimately building awareness with consumers, but our buyer are the distributors and then they have buyers who are the liquor store owners in the bar and restaurant store owners. And then we have the consumers. And so I think sort of navigating through that, it takes a really long time to get those bottles on shelves before you can even think about building enough demand for a consumer to come in and, and call for it. I'm assuming that was also the biggest learning curve you had as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, Pomp and Whimsy, the business was a joint venture between myself, my business partner from my agency, I say was, is, and um, three individuals from a design agency called Meat and Potatoes. But we came into this as five individuals thinking, all right, you know, we know strategy, we know consumers, we have the insights, we have like Grammy nominated designers doing the packaging and the design work. And we knew absolutely nothing about sales. And so that's been the steepest learning curve is recognizing that actually in the beginning, um, you know, you need people out on the streets um, getting bottles on shelves before you can even think about building your consumer story. You know, when many young companies are starting out, there's this, this significant focus on the product. It's all about the product. And while that focus is important, you can't deny that, without a strong brand behind it, it's really difficult for the brand to really take off. And often the brand becomes the afterthought, you know, something the company feels they can, you know, they can't afford to do early on. So it seems in your case that you really put a lot of effort into articulating your brand right from the start. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think in, in the world of, of spirits, premium spirits, especially brand is everything. And, you know, the, the large producers, will tell you that the liquid is almost irrelevant. I mean, of course, it does need to taste good, 
but it actually doesn't have to. And there are lots of examples of very popular brands out there, which if you were to blind taste test them, just not knowing anything about them, you would be like, why, why is anyone drinking this? Right. Um, and so it, it, it's all about the label, the identity, the brand, how you associate yourself um, with that. You know, when you go into a bar and you order a Grey Goose or a Kettle One or a Pomp and Whimsy, what does it say about you? And, and how do you position yourself versus like a Hendrix or a Bombay Sapphire? So obviously Pomp and Whimsy, first of all, first of all is a new category. So it's, it's sitting in a, an old category that we're making new again. It's anchored in the gin space. So it's not completely alien. <laughs> it's not like we're, you know, and trying to sort of educate you on some mysterious old time spirit that's made from some weird herb no one's heard of. It's a gin um, and it's a gin base and you, you're going to drink it like you would drink gin. So there's nothing unfamiliar from that point of view, but it is a cordial style. So it's sweeter, it's lower in proof. Um, it's been designed to be sipped straight. And so a large part of that distinction is the fact that there is nothing else like it. So there are a few other brands that make gin cordials and gin liqueurs, but really, you know, we're, we're aiming to become synonymous with that, that category in that space. So that's the first way that we obviously are differentiated. And then the function of the product is very different as well. So Pomp and Whimsy is amazing by itself. And you couldn't really say that about other gins. Everyone will try to tell you that, but gins are meant to be mixed. There's, there aren't that many that you're sit, sipping straight. Um, and Pump and Whimsy is the most mixable gin that you will ever um, experience. You know, there are, there are a lot of celebrities that are playing in the alcohol business these days. And this past summer, Ryan Reynolds sold his aviation gin to Diageo for like a half a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, he bought the company, you know, a couple of years ago because he loved the taste of the brand. But he also said what he didn't expect was the sheer creative joy of learning a new industry, what, what a new industry would bring. Yeah. Is that, are you finding the same kind of joy? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a really fun industry to work in, <laughs> obviously. Um, right. You know, you're, you are coming in at what is for a lot of people, the fa their favorite, one of their favorite moments in their day. Just let's just assume for people who have a healthy relationship, right, with alcohol. Uh, for a lot of people, one of the most enjoyable parts of their day, and you get to go to really fun places and really cool places to do your job, to your office, <laughs> is, right. looks very different. But yeah, absolutely, because it is so brand-driven, if you are a marketer and a storyteller at heart, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun creatively, for sure. Um, you know, we're not selling, like, deodorant or laundry detergent here um, we're selling a lifestyle and we get to live that lifestyle um, you know we've seen a move away from sexualizing women to sell alcohol to men towards alcohol brands trying to align their products with sophistication you know women's empowerment and with female friendship it's like right out of the playbook of you know the old tobacco industry you know with virginia slims you know you've come a long way baby in women's <laughs> lib so right. What marketing approach are you taking specifically in targeting women? So I think that the mistake, the big, the, the biggest mistake that brands who have attempted to market to this audience have made 
is they try too hard to talk to women because they're women um, and not not simply as women, right? So what I mean by this is anything what that you say to your consumer that says, because you're a woman, you like pink. Because you're a woman, you like fruity. Because you're a woman, you're trying to attract men. Because you're a woman, you need to diet and you're concerned about your figure, right? Every time we get spoken to in that way, it's just yet another example of society trying to tell us who to be and what to do and how to feel. That's why it continues to fail and you can co-opt any movement that you want into that. Because you're a woman, you, you know, you, you must be excited about empowerment and being a girl boss and like, okay, so we'll sponsor the women's march and then that makes <laughs> us authentic. So we don't talk to women because they're women. We don't claim that all women are the same. Um, we just talk to women as women. And as women, we, we know how women are drinking and when they're drinking and how they're feeling. And we go in to try and elevate that experience for them. So we focus very much everything we do. We think about, well, what would our consumer say or how would they feel about this? Or what would they be looking for? How can we, how can we help them and empower them? And most importantly, engage with them, um, create a community with them. You know, it's not surprising to learn but people are drinking more than usual during the pandemic. Um, Nielsen showed that total alcohol sales outside of bars and restaurants increased like 24% since mid-March. And the big winner has been distilled spirits, which mm -hmm. have outpaced other beverage category sales by a huge margin. How has Pomp and Whimsy fared since the outbreak? So I think that there's been two phases in this pandemic. And the first was the initial freak out and everyone thinking, oh my God, how, am I, how long am I going to be locked up? Um, and during that phase, people were not buying new and emerging craft spirit brands, right? They were buying what they knew, Tito's. First of all, you couldn't even go into stores at that point. You were buying curbside and you were asking by name for what you wanted. So actually that period in the pandemic was incredibly challenging for new and emerging brands like ours. And the last data that I saw from the American Craft Spirits Association was that the craft spirits industry as a whole is down 40% this year. Hmm. And that's because their route to market, which is primarily through their tasting rooms and through bars and restaurants um, has been completely wiped out. And without having that access to the home consumer, um, and you know they they have they have um, struggled, and a lot of them are not going to survive. However, what's been different for us um, is that we, as soon as the the shutdown happened, of course, the immediate reaction was, "All right, there goes half our business. <laughs> Bars and restaurants are closed." Right. Um, but like you said, it's pretty obvious that. Newton's third law states for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Mm -hmm. There has been no example in history, even during an actual prohibition of drinking going down when times are up or when times are bad. So we knew that people, we knew that people would continue to drink. And we knew that what was most important was getting access to them and, and providing that opportunity. But then the other part was just bringing all of our marketing and everything else um, through New, you know, digital channels and reaching out to consumers 
in a different way than maybe we were before where we were focused a lot on in-person activations. So for us as a brand, um, you know, we, our business has more than doubled this year. Yeah. So we have been able to buck that trend and that's largely by really redirecting all of that traffic from the on-premise. So bars and restaurants, we've been able to pick up all of that business through online sales. And then we've been able to open new retail as well. What were some of the creative ways you used to uh, market to the stay-at-home drinkers? So all along, uh, we've been, as, as I said, we always we're always thinking about okay, how is how is she feeling right now, and what kind of thing would she be responding to? So earlier, early on in the pandemic, when everyone was first excited about Zoom and doing a lot of um, you know, Zoom conference calls and so on, we realized that there was a need for a virtual experience that was not a conference call and was, you know, was, was an escape basically from what people were going through. And so I mentioned this occasion, this girls' night occasion, um, which is a moment where we get together with other friends um, to just let loose a little bit. So we focused in on that occasion, first of all, um, and we launched a virtual book club and we brought in hosts, two hosts for each session. So one would be a prominent woman from the area of business. So we had um, Sandra Campos, for example, from DVF, um, mm -hmm. and we had uh, Rebecca Minkoff, for example. So we got a lot of um, very uh, Lila Rose. We had quite a few fashion, actually, yeah. um, hosts. Um, and then we would bring a, a, a female bartender mixologist who, you know, as you can imagine, that industry has been severely impacted. So we wanted to be able to help the trade as well and offer a platform to women in the industry to continue sharing their craft um, and you know getting some good exposure so we brought we would bring those two hosts in and we ran basically a 10-week book club um, and that brought a lot of traffic um, to us and 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 again it was really just pomp and whimsy providing the platform for women to have this moment um, that they were not able to have in person at the time. So that was one thing that we did. The other thing that we did was an initiative called Cocktail Grams, um, mm. which was sparked around Mother's Day. Um, and it was this sort of idea that, um, I mean, obviously we've just been through Thanksgiving and, and, and the torture of should we see our family, should we not see our family? So Mother's Day was one of really the first occasions to come up during the pandemic where there was a you know, it was a controversial decision to decide whether you should be trying to see your mother right now, um, but more broadly, missing that mentorship of female friendship, um, you know, mothering and mentoring in my mind being the same, you know, one and the same idea. So we created a digital tool essentially for people to send someone a cocktail to tell them they're thinking of them. So the idea is you fill out a little questionnaire, you decide the style of cocktail, what the th flavor profile you think they would like, and it gets sent to them with a toast from you. And it's just a, it's just a, a message to say, I'm thinking of you. If we were together, let's have, we would have this drink together. That's a great idea. Um, and so that we used it as a, we, we use, well, we're still using it as a way to help build out our email database. And I'll tell you that we, 
that um, within two months, um, people had sent 10,000. Wow. Yeah. That's a good um, return on investment. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the, the, the third thing that we've done, um, and, and by the way, the, these are all platforms that we intend to keep evolving even outside of um, COVID. Um, but the third was to open a virtual tasting room. So a place for people to come to experience the brand, the brand story, learn some basic mixology and have a virtual get together um, that is a little bit different. What did, what did you learn about the consumer with all through all these events and, and uh, promotions that you did over the past nine months? What have you learned or surprised you about the consumer? Um, well, the consumer is very resilient, <laughs> as we all are. And no matter what kind of crisis we're going through, we all still need those moments of connection. And we still need moments of levity and we need reasons to celebrate. And just because the environment looks different, it doesn't mean that we can't still talk about and do those things. So I think for us recognizing that, hmm, you know what, actually our brand and our platform doesn't really change at all. It's just how we communicate it that, is, that has changed. Um, I think the other thing is, is that, you know, obviously, and you and I talked about this before, um, there are some behaviors that we're expecting to potentially change permanently yeah. um, from the pandemic. But I think a lot of people right now are betting, especially in my industry, on the fact that we are ultimately social animals and no amount of Zoom is going to make up for a hug and eye to eye contact. And, you know, seeing each other in, in the environment of a restaurant or a bar or a public place. Um, I would agree with that. But I also think there'll be more of a blend than there was before. So I, I think that a couple of things, um, a couple of things will endure in terms of drinking moments, which is, you know, the the behaviors I'm most interested in tracking. Um, I think the first is that we've all discovered that we can have a drink with someone even when we're not in the same place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I don't think that's going to go away because, you know, whether you're drinking with your in-laws or, you know, with friends from college across the other side of the country, we've discovered that actually it's quite fun to have a happy hour at 5 p.m. on a Thursday and plan what cocktail we're going to have in advance and make it together and enjoy it together. And I've always you know, I said from the beginning of the pandemic that a cocktail or a drink in your hand is what differentiates a work Zoom call from a social Zoom call. Mm -hmm. The same platform, it's the same technology, it might even be the same people. But if you have a drink in your hand, that's what tells you we're not working anymore. Um, and I think the other thing, so I think that we will continue to do that. And so I think there's still an opportunity for us as brands in that space to talk about that occasion and to be part of that occasion. Um, and I think the other thing that we've discovered is our pandemic pods, right? So we've all discovered that we have a group of maybe five or six people who we've seen regularly. And, and before the pandemic, these might not the pe be the people you would have predicted right. <laughs> are the people you'd have spent all your time with and, and trusted in your pod. Um, and I think that everyone in the world has learned over the last nine months what it's like to be an introvert. And there's some pretty cool aspects of being an introvert, which is 
putting placing a lot of emphasis on quality of relationships over quantity um, and I, I think that there will be an element of that that endures. So venture capital investment in all female founding teams hit about $3.3 billion last year and representing about 2.8% of capital invested across the entire US startup ecosystem last year. And while the number may seem insubstantial, it's a step from the 2.2%. It wasn't 2018. So why does the gender funding gap still persist? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. We know that it's not a lack of women starting businesses. Um, in fact, I think that in, on average, women start more businesses and have more profitable businesses on average. Um, I think that it has a lot to do with people like to invest in people who are like them. And if most of the investors are men, um, they are white men, they mm -hmm. feel more comfortable investing in other white men. Right. I think that's the simple psychological reason for it. Um, I think that there are a lot of people beyond me who have written a lot more on this topic. <laughs> so what advice would you give other female entrepreneurs? Um, I think my advice would be the same for any um, kind of entrepreneur, um, which is that start something that you feel passionate about and you believe in and that you have an audience for. And, you know, I think that people often ask me the question, you know, what keeps you up at night as an entrepreneur? And that's a really easy question to answer because the stress of, of having a startup is all consuming and relentless. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so everything keeps you up at night. A better question to ask is what keeps you going? Um, you know, given what gets you up in the morning. And for me, that is... I will never, ever, ever tire of the moment in which my consumer discovers my brand and my product for the first time and that reaction that they have to it when they realize that they're being spoken to in a way they've never been spoken to before. And that is incredibly powerful and rewarding and is really what keeps me going and I think that any kind of female entrepreneur, especially if you are designing for an audience that has been previously excluded, you are in a better position than anyone else to know what that feels like. Um, and therefore, in my opinion, better able to solve for it. And so a lot of what keeps me going is just knowing that I'm right, right? So I, I have a lot of, investor conversations where no. Frank, someone who fits the profile of what we've just described, right, will right. say to me, you know, about other people who are like me in the industry say, you know, this, uh, this is too niche or, you know, you won't be able to do this for X, Y, Z reasons. And I look back at them and I say, they can think what they like. No one knows my consumer as well as I do. That inspires you even more. Yeah. So what's next for Pop and Whimsy? Anything you can share for 2021? Yeah, we're, we're super excited actually for 2021. You know, 2020 has been a really great opportunity to get a lot of our foundation really 
right and really solid. And so now we're really excited to launch off of that foundation in 2021, when hopefully, you know, the, the world will start to get a little bit back to normal, especially from a hospitality point of view at some point, probably during the second half of next year. Um, and so, yeah, we, we're excited to launch new markets. So we've just, we've just launched in Florida and we launched in Illinois a couple of months ago. We've just um, relaunched in New Jersey and we're in the process of launching in Texas. And so we're really excited to get on the ground in all of those markets and really start to activate our consumer base there. My final question, which I ask all my guests, the luxury item question, if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one luxury item, what luxury item would that be? It can't be any form of transportation or it can't be anything that requires mobile service. What would that one luxury item be? It would be sunscreen. So <laughs> if you if you met me in person, <laughs> you would we've, we've see, met on video. Yes, yes, that I have been either blessed or cursed, whichever way you want to look at it, with extremely fair skin, um, being of you know northern European, specifically <laughs> English origin and i would not be able to survive an, on a desert island without very very high quality um, sunscreen so i'm um, this is not just um I, I unfortunately also have quite sensitive skin so it to me sunscreen is a luxury item because i tend to have to use the luxury brands um as the the mainstream ones don't work for me so <laughs> Uh, Nicola, thanks so much for coming on and telling us about Pomp and Whimsy and uh, how you found it. It was really interesting. I know you'll be uh, at the on the She Leads 2020 online conference. That's right. Coming up on uh, December 8th, which I think is today. Um, so I hope everybody who's listening can is able to uh, join. Um, if they want to check out, um, where can they go? Oh, that's a good question. I think you can go to She Leads Media and you'll find um, the link to the conference. But it's a fantastic conference. I've been, I've actually been three years in a row, and I would say that it is, um, it has very high quality of speakers, very high caliber of people in the audience, and every um, Adrian Garland, who's the woman who um, runs the event program, does a really good job of mixing content that is both practical, educational, inspiring, um, and, and very thoughtful. Um, so it's always a really, really uh, good use of time to go. Nicola, thanks again so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time. <laughs>